Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hello, folks and music nerds. Welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 132. Yep, that's right, 132. Mick Flannery is my guest on the show this week. And Mick is an amazing songwriter singer, well-known and loved in his native Ireland, but he's also made a lot of inroads in the last few years into the U.S. and Canada. And this conversation came about really organically after we met at the Edmonton Folk Festival this summer. And we were both playing there, and we were introduced through my good pal, Carrie Clark, and mix manager, Sheena Keane. So just wanted to um, put a thank you out there to Sheena and Carrie for introducing us, and it was a real pleasure to get to speak with Mick about his music and writing and recording process. I hope everyone's had a good few weeks out there. I just got back from Vancouver, where I was involved in some shows and rehearsals, and I also lost my voice, which is why I'm a little hoarse still, although I'm mostly recovered. And we also had a great big session as well. The shows went great. It was really cool to see old friends and make some new ones. We do this annual show out there where I bring in about 10 guests and we interpret an album that I pick and everyone does their own take on one of the songs from the album. It's a great time and this year we did American Beauty by The Grateful Dead. Do you know that record? Of course you do. It's a good one. 
Uh, I did a couple other shows as well, and the session that we did was to actually shoot some live videos with my current live band, and we've officially named them the Hooded Mergansers. Yes, that started out as a joke. Yes, it did, but now it's somehow become a reality. So it's Steve Dawson and the Hooded Mergansers. That's me and Joaquin Cooter on drums, Jeremy Holmes on bass, and Daryl Havers on keys. We brought in a bunch of guests as well and shot some live videos that turned out really well. So hopefully those will come out sometime in the new year. That's what I've been up to. And um, one other reminder is that the Hen House Hang that you've been hearing about this season now has 2023 dates, and there are now five spots left. Five spots. I know it's a little early, but we are openly booking them if you're interested. The dates are going to be September 25 to 28, 2023. Yep, it's a ways down the road. It's right after Americana Fest here in Nashville. It's going to be a blast, and I hope you might consider coming. We'd love to have you here and host you and teach you some cool stuff. So uh, you can get info on that at stevedawson.ca, the hen house hang. So Mick Flannery is on the show this week. And as I mentioned, I only met him this summer. And honestly, I didn't know his music either until I saw him perform there. And I was really knocked out. He was touring behind his latest album called In The Game, which is a collaboration with another singer-songwriter from Ireland, Susan O'Neill. And she's fantastic as well. It's uh, really intense, beautiful, layered music. And the performance really brought it to life. But the album is stellar, and I highly recommend it, In the Game. He, uh, Mick is a multi-platinum selling artist. He's got eight albums out to his name, and I suppose he's best known in Ireland, but that does seem to be changing. And I want to point out that he's going to be performing a few shows this week in the U.S. and Canada, so please check out his website at mickflannery.com, but I can tell you that he will be in Boston, New York State, New Hampshire, and Toronto in the next few days. So if you hear this, uh, make sure you check out his dates, mickflannery.com, and go see him. Anyway, it was great to get into his music here with him and talk about writing and recording and the processes that he has for those things and his influences and also what the music scene was like growing up in Cork, Ireland, which is where he's from. Um, I think he's, well, you know, he's definitely the first Irish artist to be on the show as well, so hooray for that. Maybe the floodgates will open now and we'll have lots of Irish content. I know there's some Irish listeners, quite a few Irish listeners out there, so hi to you, and I'm sure that you know of Mick. So before we get going here, just a shout out to a few people that kicked into uh, the podcast through donations or signed up to Patreon in the last couple of weeks, David Volrath, Britt Hibbert, and Alexis Mantell. Thank you guys so much. I really rely on that support to keep this show going. And just a reminder, we are going to be giving away a really cool union tube and transistor C-verb reverb pedal at the end of this season to a random Patreon subscriber. So if you subscribe between now and the end of the season, you will automatically be entered. If you already subscribed a year ago, you're also entered. And uh, so, yeah, we'll give that away at the end of the season. And thanks to Union Tube and Transistor for supplying that groovy prize. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Mick Flannery. Uh, so where, where are you? Are you in Cork right now? Or like where, where exactly do you live? I live in a town called Ennis Diamond in West Clare. Okay. And so it's a, yeah, I grew up in Cork, but I moved here because uh, I met a, my partner. is from Clare here, County Clare. So... I've been here for nearly ten years now. Okay, so that's on the on the south coast, west coast. Oh, west coast. Okay, yeah. we're about uh, one minute drive from the Atlantic. Oh man, 
Yeah, sounds amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, it's a small little town, but it's kind of full of full of life. Some of the towns around Ireland are suffering at the moment. You know, you see a lot yep. of shop fronts closed, but this this one is quite alive, which is cool. Is it like a fishing town or something, or is it yeah. a bigger? There's yeah. fishing. Um, there's a good few schools. There's one school in particular that's popular called the Steiner School. Oh uh, yeah, lots of people come to to enroll their children in that. There's good surfing here. It draws a lot of hippies. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. A, yeah, it's cool. It's, the hippie towns are always the some of the best towns. Yeah, yeah. My stepdaughter is uh, heading to school here as well. So we actually we just moved to this town. We were living further in inland. I was working on this house here for the last year and a half or so. And so we just moved in last month. Yeah, maybe we could start by kind of talking about the. I mean, I know you've done other stuff since, but the in the game record, which I, you know, fully full disclosure here, I had not heard of you until Edmonton until this summer. And um, I know that some of the people that I work with in Canada are huge fans of yours and stuff. But for whatever reason, I just hadn't. Uh, hadn't heard your music and so it's been great to like since then since the Edmonton Folk Fest to be able to dig in and listen to all your albums and get to know your music and stuff so Hello. I yeah man I appreciate it thank you thank you so so if, if we can sort of dive in with that in the game record I don't know if it was made was that made pre-pandemic or was that it, done? it was a little bit of both it was quite kind of jarring um okay it, it was began Prior, um, we had a few songs ready prior to the pandemic, and I think we released the first song from it. Uh, yeah. um, that was the Baby Talk single? Yeah, I think that was okay. a, like a month or two before uh, COVID came to Ireland and uh, we had lockdowns. Yeah. And we were we were dancing around the lockdown restrictions to try to get into studios. We got There was various little kind of dips in the restrictions that we could use to to get into a studio. Um, so I, I know you've historically, like you've worked some in the States or whatever, but do you have some favorite spots to record in, in Ireland? Yeah, the Christian Best, who you met in Edmonton, who plays the drums, um, he ha- he's been recording for years and I've done lots of al- lots of the albums with him, kind of cheated on him a few times uh just for kind of variety's sake you know um yeah yeah but uh we're we've got a session there in his studio next month we're doing a week there to to start a new album so where's he he's in cork uh, like right in town uh no he's kind of a half hour drive outside in a place called middleton oh okay and, and what's his setup there? Is it like a, a home studio or is it like a big commercial space or what's his deal? It's a commercial studio. Um, he's very busy there. He's very popular um, because he's he's a very good vibe. People love to to just just be around him. Um, and he's got a he's got a good he's got a great production kind of head for him on, on him. He's got a he's a great editor. You know, he's 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 always got his hatchet out for the structure of the song. <laughs> you know, yeah. He he drops bars all over the place. It's great. Yeah, he he really tightens things up. Um, Do you find that that's something that he, that you kind of rely on with a guy like that? Like, do you go in and like really 
get to work on the songs or do you generally tend to show up like fully formed? I'd show up with the song lyrics, the story of the song fully formed and the melodies usually as well. Then I, w- but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have an intro. I would, you know, I wouldn't have a general vibe and there's a kind of, um, I guess there's a, a balance that myself and Christian strike because he doesn't, really care about what the story is of the song he's more okay. he's more listening to uh he's listening from a from a say from the ear of someone who speaks a different language say so, that's a that's a great way to look at it yeah yeah um so he's just listening for when he's bored when is my ear uh, yeah falling asleep with this stuff you know so that's very useful for me because so I, sometimes i just don't think of it i I want to tell the story I want to tell. And if that means I've got to write, if the second verse is twice as long as the first verse, then I, I that, yeah, but that's what my story needs. So, and then no, no, that's two verses. You need to put, <laughs> you need to put something in between them so that <laughs> people don't leave. Uh-huh. Sort of walk me through the process in the context of that record then. So you had these songs. I, I'm also really curious about this, the collaboration with um, Susan O'Neill because she's like, relative to you like she's at the beginning of her career right and you've been around for for you know a good chunk of time now and that's an interesting way like if you think about if you'd done that in your career and had somebody that was you know well into their career wanting to make a record with you that would have really changed things for you in 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 a lot of ways or set you on a different path maybe it's an interesting collaboration so how did like did you guys write those songs together or was that something that you brought the material and thought that she'd be good or how did that come about? Uh, we have a mutual manager in Sheena and Sheena, it was Sheena's idea that, oh, our, really? okay. that our voices might suit well together. And um, we did that baby talk song and it, it, we really liked it. So we said mm-hmm. we'd, we'd do more. Um, we only wrote one song together. We couldn't really meet up. Um, this was the height of COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was travel restrictions here. It was like a two kilometer radius uh, thing. Um, we did try to do a few things over calls like this. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the time, well, it, it just basically turned out that I had got my head stuck into this story and I was, I had lots of kind of tunes and riffs lying around that once I had the kind of story in my head, I go, okay, I, I can know what I can make that song and piece it in here. And having having a narrative uh, kind of got, you know, it made it a lot easier to kind of fill in the crossword um, because you know what voices are speaking what and what kind of dramatics are going to happen and what kind of themes you can insert between two characters already in the music business kind of... Um, you know, it's kind of, well, I don't know, it's kind of like turning in on itself because they're, they're, they're singing about singing. They're uh, performing about performing type things. And, um, right. So it was a, a cool little kind of window to go through to get songs. So I got, you know, because it was COVID as well, I just had lots of time to be messing around with tunes. Susan uh, then added three songs of her own that she also kind of maneuvered into the, into the team. She changed some lines of songs and stuff and wrote one new song called You Don't Know Me uh, for this. And then uh, 
the song Trouble came out of a kind of the one co-writing session we had together um, where Susan kind of, Susan was playing the guitar and, and she, she played that kind of riff that's the kind of hook of that song. Yep. Then that we came, that song came to be then. It's kind of an interesting way to do it too, right? And, and like when you think about it, if you'd been in the room together the whole time, it would have resulted in something totally different probably. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's hard to know really what's the best way to do it. Like it's hard to know <laughs> how precious you should be with the things you have. I mean, we always yeah. knew that we were going to divide up the songs between the voices anyway because okay. that was going to be the style of the album. The, like Susan does lead a few songs where I am basically just the backing and then I lead one song where she's just basically the backing but most of them are kind of conversational or kind of a tit for tat back and forth type thing yeah yeah did you take any inspiration from like old country duets or anything like that like was that something that that you ever thought of when you were doing that kind of meshing of voices you know like like uh Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton or something like that I did not it's I not didn't. like that, but it's like, it does, to me, it sort of brings that to mind in some sort of abstract way. Yeah, I didn't know of much, really. I guess Jackson, that song that Johnny Cash mm-hmm. and Jim Carter have, yep. it's like a fight. Do you know the song um, Fairy Tale of New York? Sure. That's like very famous over here, and it's like... Yeah, and here. Yeah, it's, I guess it's one of the, it's one of the best kind of fight songs between two yeah. characters like did you, have you heard Kendrick Lamar's uh, news yeah I know I, th- I was just thinking that song that I can't remember what the name of that song is too but it makes me really uncomfortable but it's cool it's called We Cry Together that's it did you see the video <laughs> I haven't seen the video no they performed the song like a theatrical piece the oh two my god uh, Kendrick Lamar and oh god I can't bring her name but they're fantastic at it yeah and it just brings the song to life uh, it's so crazy yeah and they record the vocals live as well. So you can hear the room when they're yeah. barking at each other, these things, you know. Um, yeah, like conversational songs were always the thing for me. I, I always liked Tom Waits's insertion of, um, you know, inverted commas, like uh, the dialogue of what someone is saying to the other person. And Randy Newman does it as well. I just, you know, I love the... I I always like the kind of marriage of simple dialogue with mm-hmm. with music. Um, it's just something I get drawn to because I don't know what it is. It's the the marriage of melody and word is like the mystery to me. It's like why does that work so well? Why does that melody pick up that phrase so well? And why you know why does the movement of the melody capture the exact sadness of the phrase or how does it make the phrase feel like something less of the normality that it is Mm -hmm. i wish i had a good example now um i know what you mean like i hear that in your music for sure in the way that you deliver a line and the way that the melodies move through the progressions and stuff when i went to school i never liked i never liked poetry for some reason i found this i thought i wondered why it was so deliberately uh, difficult. I wondered why. Okay. I, I wondered why I needed to work to understand. What you wanted the, simplicity. You wanted a direct. Yeah. I wanted yeah. someone to tell me what they're talking about. You know. Uh-huh. And not not make it flowery. And like, even though I was a big fan of um, of Kurt Cobain, sometimes his 
approach to lyrics kind of bothered me as well because I wondered like was he even trying or did he just happen on a style of kind of cryptic lines that you know he didn't really need to make sense it was just a cool way of of using the language um mm-hmm. nobody really needed to know what the song was about um because it was so cool anyway um, right when i i was such a big fan that I, tr- I tried to write like him but i just found myself not able to pull that off that that cool mm-hmm. so i just went for direct as concise as possible does the theatrical element play into your writing that much because i know you've had experience with that with your first record turning into a musical or, or turning i guess it's a would do you call it a musical i guess it's a musical yeah. right well it's uh, the coming one i guess yeah is that something that you're kind of aware of and maybe trying to um incorporate into your writing um it wasn't very deliberate in the beginning like i just wanted to write songs and that mm-hmm. that, that uh, musical is based on the first album that I attempted. And I found myself, I was like 19 or 20 writing songs. And I, I was always drawn towards these kind of melancholic, sad songs with the kind of Leonard Cohen or Jim Croce. I remember my uncle telling me like when I was about 16 or 17, I'd be singing the songs in the back of the car. And he, going, he says, you know, you should probably listen to some other music or something like that. You're, <laughs> you're, you're too young to be singing lover's cross or something you don't know uh-huh. what you're talking about and um he so that i don't know that kind of that stuck with me so that i found myself reluctant to talk about myself or reluctant to speak from my point of view so i conjured up these characters that i could i could like project my ignorance onto them and make them that's the, that's sort of the 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 crux of the whole first record right it's like two brothers and then i haven't delved super deep into the story but there there's a woman and there's like a lot of gambling going on and yeah. some heartbreak and yeah, yeah, cheating and lying and whatnot yeah oh like <laughs> they come across as young as well they come across because i'm writing their their lines i guess they come across as naive and young Mm-hmm. All, all the kind of dramatic anxiety of their feelings for each other and stuff like that is in there. Um, but it was just a kind of a, a cheat for me to get out of the, get away from the, the podium, I guess. Do you know what? I understand that. On the record with Susan, like what were you picturing in the way of like characters or who you were actually portraying on that record? Um, I think to some degree I, I carried on this character from the previous album I had done. I had written an album which had a slight theme to it, um, which was this is this is the the solo record with your the Mick Flannery solo yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was touring that album, I I did this little story as well where I was talking about this character who was a musician and trying to make it. And, thank you. And uh, trying to, and then he achieves a huge amount of fame and. Uh, success and then it fades away so it was kind of like the whole ego trip bubble burst kind of team so I, I think I kept that guy for for the in the game thing uh, and I, but I just made him a little I made him a little weaker I made it, I made him less talented and more susceptible to jealousy and insecurity um, okay. because there's a lot of those type of guy in yeah. the, that you meet in the music industry (laughs) it's a funny business because you can there's a a degree to which you can fake it um and you can kind of balance things out with other attributes like 
say if you're very good looking or something and you've got a good voice, uh, I don't know, you can, you can, you can still have a career without maybe having any songwriting skills or anything like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you can be a guitar player with massive networking abilities, but only so good at the guitar. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just something I kind of wanted to have a look at that kind of very interesting theme, I think. Well, it's, as well in relation to women as well, you know, it's like almost cliche at this stage, all the stories of like men that, that kind of attach themselves to talented females mm-hmm. and don't, and kind of don't let them go. You know, they, their uh, self-worth is, is connected to mm-hmm. the success of the talented female. And, you know, they'll, they seem to be willing to do all sorts of things to like psychologically abuse this person in order to just to stay in their lives, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. A little, a little like Turner perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. That type <laughs> of thing. I mean, yeah. you, you hear about it happening all the time. How did you approach writing from a fe- like in a, from a female perspective on this record? The only thing I did was the only thing I felt conscious of doing was this song called Lonely Winds, um, where it, I don't know how connected it was to that character, but I guess because she was, um, because Susan's character was like talented, successful, and kind of forthright, um, that she could be susceptible to being alone. I This other person in my life that I know personally, who is kind of like... Um, I suppose she would describe herself as like a, a, a feminist and aware of uh, discrepancies in, in the world, you know, and imbalances. But I see that person as lonely and there's something getting in her world of like, uh, it's like she's too, um, she's too given to like watching out for the kind of the, the more broad social differences between men and women that she's kind of missing out on a little bit of compromise and started striking up a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm describing this very well, um, but the song is like, I was trying to uh, like write from her lonely, from that loneliness, like where she, she's saying, I'm not supposed to say this, but I actually do want a man. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, some of her friends and some of her kind of uh, contemporaries would be saying, no, you don't need a man. Um, and it's wrong to think that you need a man. And that, that song is just coming from the point of view, well, actually, I, I kind of want, I do want a man, even if he's connected to all these other pigs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did, you and, did you and Susan have these kind of discussions about these characters in these songs? Yeah, um, like that song... I wondered if it was right. I wondered if the sentiments were singable for a female. So I asked her, are you comfortable to sing these things? And she said, yeah, like that, that sounds about right. And so I was happy. Okay. You'd never really know. I mean, uh, you can't please everybody, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How was that when, when you have, like, you've probably never done that before where you're writing songs and somebody else is singing the lyrics. That's unusual for you. Yeah, uh, but I guess they were written in that way, and I had never performed them myself. Okay, yeah, right. So they were from the beginning. They were that was the intention. Yeah, and you know, like when you're writing for 
a duet situation where you have the male voice and the female voice and the registers are so apart yeah that the, you to, to find the correct key where both voices can sit uh as comfortably as possible i can't sing some of susan's parts do you know they're just mm-hmm. they're weirdly away from my range so i've never actually i've never actually performed the songs as they are in those keys so i i never felt any kind of ownership of them i guess like you can hear my voice in in some parts of the album is struggling to get up to where I need to get to. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. W- uh, would you ever want to perform those songs on your own, or would that just be too weird? Um, it just seemed so, like I really understand when I saw you guys in Edmonton. It just seemed like those were meant to be that way. I, I, you know, like it. It doesn't. If you took those songs out of that context, that would just be weird or something. Yeah, uh, ironically, the the one we wrote together is the most um, kind of interchangeable. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like it seems to be more of a political based song than than any kind of conversation. It, the conversational ones are difficult to perform on your own because you have to explain them prior. You have to say, okay, the first verse is the male singing, and the second verse is the retort from the female. It's a strange, like you just kind of have to hope that the audience remembers that that's the, and that they can recognize where, where the other voice comes in. Yeah, yeah. So the the only song that I've done in gigs of my own is the the Trouble song, because it it just it only it only really has one narrator. Uh, we right. we we split up the the narration for the sake of the album, but it can it functions as a as a solo. Either way. Song. Yeah. yeah, I get that. Walk me through a little bit of the recording process then. So you did, some of it was written pre-COVID. When you actually did get to make the record, what was it like? Like there's a tune like uh, Play With The Mind that sonically, I just, you know, I love the, the way that, you know, there's like sort of weird tremolo guitars and then strings come in. Like there's obviously a lot of thought and care that went into the production side. So how did you, like, tell me a bit about the process of actually the nuts and bolts of making that record. Susan and I went to a studio in Dublin to track um, vocal. Is she from Dublin? No, she's from here in uh, oh, okay. the West Coast as well, in County Clare. So we went to um, a studio in Dublin. I don't know why I can't remember the name of it. My mind like is... A, like a kind of a big commercial sort yeah. of studio? Yeah, yeah. And we, I think we spent a week there and we got a, we did some, we did piano, piano tracks and uh, a lot of the stuff that wouldn't need band in the background. I don't remember exactly what, we knew we were going to pick up a few songs out of that because we knew some of them wouldn't need uh, a full band kind of treatment. Yeah. And we did get a few, we, we, we did get a few keepers from that session, but we ended up doing, redoing a lot of stuff once we got into the room in Cork with Christian and the guys. And mm-hmm. when we were all together. Literally, all, were you all set up playing live together? Yeah, we were between, there was a, a large live room which had drums, drums, bass and guitar. You know, the mm-hmm. amps, the amps were away. Um, and then Susan had her own room uh, where she sang and played guitar. And I was in the control room with the piano and a vocal. For a few of the songs that we had tracked in Dublin a couple of weeks prior, uh, we had the guys play along to those uh, tracks. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't remember exactly which one we were doing first. I think it was the Are We Free song. Susan and I had been happy with the recording as we had it, but 
it's just as you know yourself like tracking to something is uh is very much different to mm-hmm. playing yeah uh, live like did you do you know that uh, i can't remember the exact um the exact details of the experiment but it was a brain experiment done on musicians playing music at the same time and their brains their brains get tuned into each other and there's a kind of a there's this empathetic thing that happens and it makes a lot of sense uh you know from the results like when you're pl- when you're playing with someone even if you can't see them but they're in another room and you know they're there and they're playing it you can pick up their timing totally you know, uh, absolutely yeah there's no question i don't pick- even think you need to do an experiment to know that yeah I think that's, I think that's why they did the experiment though because you, you because they found that even the most talented of musicians could not kind of adhere to a recorded track you know it just their brains could not pick up on it the same way they couldn't pick up the feel they, because it wasn't alive feel is something that you can't yeah you can't replicate it you can't go back and pick it apart i mean you can but you're just going to end up with a bit of a shit show but yeah, and if you find yourself moving notes and stuff like that. You just yeah. lose, you lose so much, and you can't even understand almost why you lost it. That's right. But there's a huge difference. So in the end, we we just said, okay, let's let's turn on the mics on the piano again, and turn on Susan's vocal again, and let's do them all again, all, okay, all together. And then all you know, it's just it's just different, immediately different. Even if you're not absolutely, like, you, and you say. I might have thought the vocal I got in Dublin just was very cool and I hit that note better, but it doesn't really matter because the, the feel is um, the feel is there. That's something that you can't probably pull off as well when you're 20 as, as you can when you're at the age when you are now with the experience that you have. Those are the kind of things that you can't, you know, like it's hard to explain to somebody like it's not all about the perfect note or the perfect performance that feel is something that you just know it's there or, you, or it's not I guess from a playing point of view as well you know you've sat with your instrument for 10 or 12 years you're just more comfortable because like being naive in a studio is you know very understandable and being mm-hmm. nervous and you know I don't know like just not having that level of comfort to know that you to have that confidence that you okay I'm just going to I'm going to forget that I know this song and just play and listen yeah. to what everyone's playing and give a kind of a, give that type of natural performance uh, in an unnatural setting, I guess it was headphones on and surrounded. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So for that record, did you record most of your vocals playing the piano? A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I can remember now. And the- I mean, that to me seems like it would be a natural thing rather than, standing up in front of a mic with no piano there and and just yeah. singing. I mean, I'm sure you can do that too, but it seems to me like that would be like you would feel more at home doing it with, you know, playing it live with the way that you would on a stage, essentially. Certain, certain times my playing lets me down. If the, really? If, if the piano... If the piano part, like that Play With The Mind song that you mentioned, yep. I think I have to do that separately because the part is difficult. And I, if I'm sitting, you had to focus on it a bit. Yeah, to, and then I don't think I even got it right for the recording. It has a little <laughs> looseness to it. That's good. It was it was a it was a thing in the mixing. I like I wondered, and I did it. I said it to Tony, who was mixing it. 
like, should you loop that, um, the performance of that riff? And he, he kind of just refused to do it. And I said, okay, Tony. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's the feel. And I, I guess in my my head that, that riff had a kind of a, a hip hop kind of thing to it, which, allows for that sound allows for like um you know the block sectioning of um of riffs um but he he just disagreed so strongly that i felt i couldn't continue the conversation (laughs) (laughs) what about the other elements like the you know the guitars are super cool i love the i don't know who your guitar player is but he he's great his name is alan comfort has Uh, he been your guitar player for a long time yeah, it must be over ten years now. Um, All right. Yeah, he's he's great. He's great. He's got great parts and really cool tones and stuff. Yeah. Do you get involved in his world at all, or do you just sort of like let him do his thing? No, I never. <laughs> I, the only thing I think sometimes I say to him, "Would you mind playing that again?" I like, as in he'd do something live, and it's so cool. Yeah. I, I never really want him to have to do the same thing again every night at, at a, on a tour or whatever. But sometimes mm-hmm. he plays something so cool that I go, you mind just putting that in every time? <laughs> goes, yeah, no bother. Cause he's for he's the probably rest, like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but yeah, sure, I'll do that. He, yeah, he generally <laughs> doesn't. And uh, <laughs> so we have to stop. <laughs> and I go, okay, stop what you just did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a nice element of the way that we do play live I think is that there's no mm-hmm. there's no kind of commissioned notes you know there's mm-hmm. nobody's really told what to play mm-hmm. there's certain there are certain outros in certain songs where Christian will lead on the drums the vibe of the outro yeah he'll either drive it on or he'll sync it back or he'll do some type of rhythm and it'll always be kind of impromptu uh, where an outro is kind of a nice place to do that because it's going to have its it's going to end yeah. you know so uh, that's always kind of a nice excitement. We don't use set lists, so we don't really know what's coming until like. Mm-hmm. Although that that can be that's a bit of a lie with this album because we had this kind of story thread that I was kind of yapping on in between songs. Right. To make that comfortable for myself, I had it to. It has to follow that. I had to put right. the songs in some certain order, you know. Yeah. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple of years now and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Thanks to our other sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor. 
They're known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing, both on stage and in the studio. I use their Sonebender Fuzz pedal, the Moore pedal, and the Swindle Overdrive pedal all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find them at uniontone.com. And thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. From the legendary V610, C610, and 611 complimenter units to the new 500 series lunchbox mic pre's and EQs, Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. And what about the string arrangements and, and stuff like that? I, I don't I don't know if there's... Are there any horns on, on like, full horn arrangements on this there's record? There's a few horns, yeah. Um, the, the song... I know on other records you've got almost, like, stacks, stacksy yeah. kind of horns, but... Uh, on this one, it's not as much of a thing, but there's definitely like a lot of string arrangements. That was one of my favorite elements of what Tony brought to uh, the album previous. Tony Buchan did the production on the, the album prior to this, the self-titled album. And his approach to strings is kind of funky. It's, it's like uh, uh, things that I would never think of. Did he like lay some ideas on you or did he just do it and it was done or how did it go down? I don't even remember if he showed me what he was going to do. He may he have. did it. Yeah. Is he Irish? Where I don't know him. Australian. Oh. I met him in Los Angeles and we wrote a couple of songs together just as a kind of a get to know each other session in his in his studio in Los Angeles. And then for the self-titled album a few years ago, I went over there to record with him and just allowed him to pick the musicians. And he, it was lovely. It was, it was a cool time. I, I did feel like I did feel bad because I was cheating on my gen, my usual band. Mm-hmm. But I kind of, I don't know. I've always kind of been. That's a big leap. The, the band has changed over the years in certain, you know, I've, I've always been a bit of a kind of a slut in that way. Like I <laughs> move around and I like playing with different people. It feels like, I don't know, it feels kind of natural to do things that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do too. I totally know what you mean. Yeah. I don't like feeling stagnant in that department. But going to Australia where you, you know, I don't know if you know many people over there or anything, but that's a big, that's a big leap of faith. Oh, he, he was living in Los Angeles at the time. Oh, okay. You didn't go to Australia. You went to oh, L.A. To... Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I think he's since moved back to Australia, but at the time it was L.A. Okay. Which was cool. I don't know. I was like, L.A. has its own vibe for sure. You know? I'll say. Yeah. What part of the city was that in? Uh, it was like in the northwest. Uh, like, uh, is it uh, close enough to Silver Lake, I think? Okay, yeah. Is that central? I forget, really. Uh, That's pretty central, yeah. It was kind of a hippie townish type. There was like 
mm-hmm. the expensive cafe near the street. <laughs> uh, lots of people with small shitty dogs. <laughs> oh, I know exactly where you mean. <laughs> uh, so who played on that record? I know we're sort of jumping around here, but that's okay. I won't remember their names properly. I won't remember their full name. They were just they were just guys that he knew, like that he worked with yeah. in LA. Okay. It wasn't like Jim Keltner. You weren't working with like LA royalty. Even if I was, I mightn't have known. I'm very <laughs> very ignorant. You know? I like I I don't really listen to a lot of music. I uh-huh. so I don't I don't know what's going on. I don't like uh Sheena asks me the questions about like, who do you think would be a good producer for this new batch of songs? I says, I don't know anyone. I don't know anything. Like, <laughs> can Kenny Lamar do it? <laughs> uh, the the guys I had never met before, uh, okay. they were all very cool. It just felt, you know, it felt cool. It felt like I was on my own, but in mm-hmm. a good way. I can, I was knocking around Los Angeles at nighttime, then kind of just on my own. I would go to the comedy clubs and stuff. I'd just hang around. and You know, I had that kind of excited feel of the new stuff was being put down. And it's a very cool time, really, that, that you know, the evenings of a recording session is very cool. Totally. You know, yeah. your, your mind is alive with what's happened and what's happening next. And, you know, the new ideas that came along, the song that didn't feel like it was going to win is now your favorite and all that type of stuff. How much of being like a fish out of water in that scenario was like how, how beneficial to the project was that for you? Do you think? I, I guess I had I, I had less control, I guess, than I usually had, mm-hmm. um, because I know Christian so well. Um, I guess we have we have our own style of kind of communication, and um, you know, people people are who they are, and their personalities come out in what they play. You know the and it's hard to it's hard to kind of embody someone else completely mm-hmm. in your playing. It, it feels like a very intimate thing, you know, playing music with someone, uh, which is why I kind of use the cheating analogy because it does kind of feel like you're. It feels like you're having a very kind of emotional moment with someone as you record. Or yeah, of course, yeah. People people feel very connected and they feel very proud of what they've done afterwards. It's a strange kind of one night stand deal (laughs) yeah i know that feeling and you know i think it can be really liberating too like it's important i think to work with to get different feels and be in different locations and get out of your comfort zone sometimes even if it means that you're not totally at home it's probably good for you artistically i found with like uh with tony and with some other people the in the stages of pre-production or in the in, a, in any co-writing scenario, I, I, recently I've just found it so good for variety. Uh, Christian, uh, the man who produces in Cork, told me, I don't know how many years ago, he said, Every, you know, a lot of the times you come in here with a song, it's at 86 BPM and it's in 4-4. <laughs> He's got you dialed. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might bring 10 of those for an album. <laughs> And like, like, oh shit! So I like I'd go home and I'd put the metronome at a hundred and see what I could do. Like, and yeah, kind of force myself into other places. But oftentimes it was just far more. It was just a quicker route to like play with someone else and have someone else drive the the start of the song. Like let them start it in their in their comfort zone, which is away mm-hmm. from mine. So they might 
they might land in 6 8 at 110 bpm or something like that and you go okay so all right i can i'll, I'll move my toolkit as best i can into this into this garage yep. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> i like that analogy <laughs> some part of me thinks as well like the the cheating analogy works because you 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 find yourself showing off again to what do you mean uh, you 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 want to impress the person that you're now in relationship with that you're writing a song with you want to you like you you don't want them to feel like this was a mistake that, that you sat they sat in the room with you to write a song uh you want them to know that there was a reason that you were in the room um mm-hmm. and i i think that like you know in a way this like in a certain way, in a kind of a cynic, certain, slightly cynical way, this is what we're doing. We're kind of showing off. We're expressing ourselves in a kind of a fancy way when we play music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It happens as well when, you know, uh, say if you spent your whole life playing to your home audience uh to like a a devout group of fans there in in a, in your locality it's different to how you would play where you dropped into a new place altogether totally. complete strangers and now you must you must show off in a different way you must you must let them know immediately why they came to the gig and you you can't be you can't be relaxed you have to be in the moment and say, okay, why is this good? Is it good? Um, that's kind of what I mean is that the new people force you to, to put your A game on again. Um, it's important to have that every, every few years. Yeah. A little kick, get a little kick in the ass going. Yeah, everyone puts their <laughs> A game on for a one-night stand. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so I'm also really curious about your career trajectory is unusual in the sense that you had quite a bit of success like right out of the gate like you didn't make a bunch of shitty records at the beginning that like a lot of people do uh how did that all start for you like were you like you grew up in dublin right uh cork oh you grew up in cork okay so was there a like was there much of a music scene there were you playing around cork how did it all happen and and how did you get because i think you got signed to you like you were on a major label right right out right out of the gate right um, yes, after the first album, I, I got a, a major label, uh, deal. All right. There was, a, there was a love and a lovely music scene in Cork and there still is. It's, it has a good history. Um, tell Rory, me a bit about that history. I don't Rory, know. Rory Gallagher was from Cork and he, he, has uh, a, okay. he has a lot to do with the pride of the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of good bands that knock around, be them cover bands or be the, be it original. Um, there's a there is a kind of a pride in the place for mm-hmm. for good music, and there's always been a good music bar where the where the good bands like to congregate. And um, what are those called? Well, 
Charlie's Bar was one of is one of them. Like there's been, I think there's been a kind of a shift around maybe since the restrictions, and a lot of the bars had to do different things to stay alive. Yeah. Um, and it's been so long that since I've lived there that that I guess I'm out of the loop a bit. Well, that place was one of your main haunts, Charlie's. Yeah. 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 So to my to my detriment, really, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, tell me about your like your begin like were you just showing up at, at kind of like open mics or did you have a band or what were you doing when you were like a teenager? Um, I did a few open mics and I went to this kind of course called music management and sound, where it was kind of what they call a post leaving cert uh, college here in in Ireland. Uh, when you're 18, you leave school, you don't want to go to university. You, you pick this kind of um, vocational course. Uh, it was a year-long okay. course. Was it training you like in like sound reinforcement, like technical stuff or It music? had a couple, a couple of elements, yeah. There was like music theory and there was management theory, like trying to avoid all the pitfalls of the industry. Uh, they really? tell you all the horror stories of like dubious managers and bad deals and stuff <laughs> like that. And then they send you off. I, there's I'm, nothing like that in North America that I'm aware of. That's crazy. It doesn't work, by the way. You still make all the mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I made it, it didn't work for me. Okay. Uh, but that's the intention is like, we're going to churn out a bunch of musicians. We're going to sh- tell them, we'll teach them some theory and some ways that you're going to get dicked around and, and then go for it. Yeah. And it was great. <laughs> they would put people together in bands just for the, okay. like, just with a view to one performance, like two months down the line, write a few songs. You've got three, you've got 10 minutes in this gig um, in two months time. Uh, so it needs to be good. Uh, get your shit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very cool. And then people formed their own bands by, you know, hearing and kind of wanting to play with various people who they kind of spotted, like the lady who plays the violin in my band, uh, Karen O'Doherty. That's where I met her. Okay. 20 years ago now. Uh, yes. And then from there, I kind of played with a few different people, always with Karen, and made that first album. How did that come about? Like, did, was that a self-financed kind of thing? Or did you, was there some small label helping you out? Or how did you do it? It, it was a friend of the family helped me out. Okay. My, my mother was recording an album with this man named Pat Hearn, who was a friend of our family. And uh, he, I was doing some piano and doing some backing vocals and stuff like that. And I think, I, I don't remember exactly, but apparently I just kind of usurped the whole session. And I, <laughs> Oh, you like you were there like as a session player singing harmonies and playing yeah, piano. And then I just... And suddenly it was your suddenly session. Suddenly it was my session, yeah. <laughs> because it was my mother, I guess she goes, oh yeah, no, let him record a few songs or whatever. And then yeah. it became, I just started, I, I guess I started telling him the story of the songs. And I guess he, he kind of, I mean, he was into it. and he wanted, This is Evening Train you're talking about. Yeah. There uh, wasn't one before that. There wasn't. There was an EP before that that I kind of recorded in the college. We made that album there at, at Pat O'Hearn's place and he just never charged me for it. I was still old. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how that happened. Because um, like, it's it sounds fully realized at that point it doesn't sound like you're just some kid screwing around with songwriting like it's a full-on thing how does how did that happen like had you been writing songs for since you were 10 or something 
I think from when I was about 16, I think. I had okay. like a lot of throwaway things that I was trying to get together. Yeah, I don't know. I had I had really had a passion for it. You know, I, I, I kind of, I really liked just sitting down with a guitar or, or there was a piano at our house as well. Who were you listening to as a kid? Like, who were your biggest, you mentioned Randy Newman, you mentioned uh, Tom Waits, Tom both Waits. of whom I can hear in your music, but who else is there? Tom Waits was the biggest. Um, yeah. Bob Dylan, uh, Jim Croce, Joni mm-hmm. Mitchell, Tracy Chapman. Uh-huh. My, my grandfather was a big Paul Robeson fan. Okay. Uh, and then and Johnny Cash. So that was a lot of American music, really, and yep. some Canadian. Yeah. Um, Did you ever get a chance to see any of those people? I think in my twenties, I saw Bob Dylan. And uh-huh. I saw Tom Waits. Uh, I don't think I saw any of the others. Where did you see Tom Waits? Did he come to Ireland? He did. He brought his rat cellar tent to Dublin, to Phoenix okay. Park. And I remember my uncle crying next to me when he sang the, is it the Tom Troberts blues? The yeah. Wasted and Wounded one. Uh-huh. That was brilliant. He, um, always, he always puts on quite a show. Like a real theatrical performance as well. Like yeah. A kind of character on stage, you know. Yeah. Even the jokes, the very kind of stylized jokes. You know? Totally. How do you feel now? Like, what year was that? 2005 or something when that came out? Mm, yeah, around there, I'd say. I don't really so, know. So, whatever it is now, 15 years later, how do you feel about that material now? Because it's like coming, like, now you're doing a, or there was a musical mounted, yeah. so you're revisiting it. You know, most people would be horrified to go back and work on their first record again. It's great. Like, it's so cool, but it's very unusual. I guess that's true, yeah. There there are some parts of it that are horrifying to me, all right. There are? Well, some of the songs are cut. Um, mainly, I, I, I do like the songs, It's and I still perform some of them. It's just mm-hmm. my voice on the recording. I can't really, uh, you know. You feel like you hadn't really come into your own yet, like as a as a singer? No, and I don't know if I ever really got it either uh, because I was so so influenced by American writers that on especially on that first album I can hear this odd twang this odd kind of countryish American Southern twang which I think people get away with a lot because a lot of music sounds like that yeah but I can I can hear it as an affectation and it bothers me and then mm-hmm. I can hear I can hear myself put on this kind of Tom Waits croak that wasn't really natural to my voice either Okay. Uh, it's like a, you know, you can you can mimic it in a way. Like I don't even know if I was smoking that much at the time. I was. It's but, understandable though. Like you know, a lot of people just know what they know, and that that's that's what you knew musically. Yeah, I mean, I can forgive myself, I guess, a bit for that. Did you ever go back and listen to like early country or blues or anything like that? Um, like the generations that would have influenced people like Randy Newman and Tom Waits and. I've listened to uh, Robert Johnson, um, uh, Lead Belly, mm-hmm. uh, Howlin' Wolf. Um, my brothers are great blues fans, and they would work. They worked in Charlie's Bar, and they always had great music playing. Mm, okay. So I probably know of more than I can name the names of. Yeah. Um, but you'd you'd heard it, and it and it whether it seeped in or not, I don't know. But yeah, I'm always just curious if people like continue the journey of discovery as far as going back. Howlin' Wolf for me is one, is one of the just the coolest. Yeah. 
sound right. things and you just wonder like how did they make it sound like that i know it sounds so good yeah when the equipment wasn't have been you know wasn't have been much if uh, the guitar is too loud you just move the amp away from the one microphone that's in the room <laughs> it's fantastic uh, yeah. i guess his voice is just so cool that, that it'll carry it'll lift everything else a bit but i mean so yeah, I mean, he would have been a huge influence on Tom Waits, for sure. Yeah. And who's the other guy, the kind of crib? Captain Beefheart? He's later, I suppose. Yep. Well, he, you know, he came out of the same scene as Tom Waits did, really. I still find myself drawn towards some of that kind of type of writing as well. Some of Tom Waits' kind of storytelling where it's kind of uh, structureless. You know, he's just trying to... He's, mm-hmm. Sort of paint a picture of a... Yeah, he's creepily moment. speaking over yeah. some odd music in the background. I kind of get drawn towards that. That first album, it's really stark. Like it's it's really dry. I don't I I don't even think there's any like reverb on it or anything. It just sounds like, you know, there's there is some other instrumentation, but not very much. And it's just very stark. Like it sounds it's, it sounds pretty unique. I think. Thank you. Uh, I did you. Did you do it at Christian's? Oh no, you did it at that. So it was uh, all done at that guy's place with your mum. Yeah, make, making him do it for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was all done. Yeah, so he did all that. I mean, uh, his son did the kind of. We we couldn't afford to get a drummer, and the studio wasn't big enough to record a kit. So we just his son kind of programmed some drums for us. And okay. He, you kind of just played them in live on a keyboard type thing. Oh, really? It does not sound like that. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't pointed it out. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was very kind of organic. Um, it was it was a cool experience. So when you've gone back to do the musical stuff, like I assume you're involved in that in the musical, do you perform it too? Or are you just involved in some back backstage kind of way? In the first instance of it, I was on stage as kind of part of the... Uh, the conceit was that we were the band in the bar, and the, okay. I, I was the piano player in the bar. So I would accompany the actors as they sang the songs, but I wasn't really supposed to be there, or I had no lines, or I, I didn't interact. Did um, people know it, know it was you? Yeah, because we we put it up in Cork, where I'm from, and where we thought okay. we might sell more tickets. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I I think I played a so- I, I think I play a song at the start of of that version i i sang a song at the beginning okay yeah and is that something you're going to do again or was it just like a one-off like how did it happen um well this lady ursula rani sarma she was this who's a writer she wrote the script for us and then uh, i guess it was years later really with sheena on board that it it took you know it okay. took it took sheena really to kind of drive it into reality um and it's so was still- that was the woman that wrote the script, like, did she just do that <clears throat> thinking it was a cool idea or did somebody like license yeah. the, the, the material? Like, how does that actually work? Or did she just think it was cool and wanted to write some? Yeah. She just rang me up one day and okay. I didn't know who she was. And she said, I'd like to write uh, the screen or the stage version of this. And I said, okay, okay. So we, we met and talked about it. And then she wrote, she wrote all the dialogue for the characters, you know, and it was great. She kind of wove them a bit tighter together and put in a few subplots. And uh, yeah. it was cool. Uh, and so who actually mounted the, the, the production? We, we did it in the Everyman Palace in Cork. And okay. the, the Everyman Palace and myself and Sheena really 
kind of partnered as the production companies. Yeah. So at the moment, it's kind of it's it's just sitting with me. I'm the production company. Mm-hmm. Um, and but we have hopefully uh, we're kind of moving it into a new conversation in Canada actually. Oh, um, uh, really? So it's hopefully going to go up again next year. Yeah. So be a new director and a couple of new people involved. Yeah. So it's a kind of it's thankfully kind of still in motion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so cool. Tell me a little bit about how your career. So, like in Ireland, your records were really successful did that translate to the uk in general um and did you get, like when did you start playing over in the uk right away or how did that pan out for you i know i never really did very well in the uk apart from london which was too often to a very expat audience so all irish people a lot of irish yeah yeah i have i kind of gave up on the uk as well like I, I, um people say that it's because they have so many so many homegrown a band mm-hmm. musicians that it can be hard to break in to uh, um i did a lot of tours in germany and things went uh things went well enough uh, you know sometimes you'd get let down by an agent or you know um and things would kind of slow down for a while uh I, in general i i take a very kind of relaxed perhaps too relaxed approach uh-huh. to, my, to my career so white lies came out in whatever it was like a couple of years that's your second record i think yeah and that and it like that was really successful in ireland so does that not translate to other close places other than ireland um though the albums like weren't really picked up by uh record companies outside of ireland i was signed really? with emi uh in dublin and okay. uh it was quite a long it was like a five album deal as well which was a mistake Ooh. yeah that was one of the mistakes that the the course I went to. They said, <laughs> they, they yeah. said don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I did it anyway. Where should I sign? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, like so, it, it just I don't know. Was did they know it was coming down the tracks or something, or else I was just uh, just a step below kind of commercial viability that they didn't jump at at, at what I was doing. Uh, a lot of the time. So, what, was, what were they jumping at? Like, if not you, like, what was going on that they were jumping at? Well, the, you know, the usual kind of story. Like, there was poppier stuff. There was more catchy stuff happening. Um, okay. And often, as well, the, if there was a story attached to it, that was good. Like, I didn't really have a story. I was kind of like a, a middle class white fella. Uh, who, who gives a shit? <laughs> you know. Yeah. He thinks he's got something to say. He probably doesn't. <laughs> um and then I like I guess as well, I just didn't really try all that hard. You know, I, I did you tour a bunch around Ireland? Like did, there, there can't be that many places to play. Uh not that many, but we played them. Yeah. <laughs> you played them all. We played them all. It was great fun. Um, uh-huh. Like what does touring a lot in Ireland look like? Is it like a three week tour and you're like I can't even imagine that. Yeah, well, for us it was more like a, a rolling weekend, long weekend thing. Okay. Thursday, yeah. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, nearly every weekend for, and we'd be playing small places as well. And I lost a fuck ton of money. Really? Paying the band too much, thinking I was. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And then they loved. They loved you though. Yeah, that was all that mattered. And <laughs> then the tax man said, "No, something else matters actually." <laughs> Yeah. 
so I, I guess I got, I, I don't know, like, I feel lucky, you know, I generally just feel lucky if, if I were to, sometimes like close, people close to me tried to tell me that I was unlucky, um, that I, that I should have moved management earlier because my manager wasn't uh, gung-ho, wasn't uh, looking for contacts, just was kind of sitting on the touring around Ireland and was happy with that and wasn't mm-hmm. looking for contacts elsewhere. And I kind of knew that, but I was just, it was a kind of a mixture of a, a kind of a modesty and a, a, just a kind of a fear of of kind of reaching out or something or um, being too ambitious that I kind of I stuck with the same manager for too long. Um mm-hmm. EMI were bought by uh, Universal, two albums in to my uh, five album deal. And the, the, the relationship never was the same between myself and Universal as it was did, with, with the people who had initially signed me. You know? Did they hold you to it or did they release you? They held me to it, but okay. I, I think I pissed them off. I went away and I recorded an album called By the Rule and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really involve them at all. And I, I made an album that I wanted to make of songs that I had written at the time, exactly how I wanted to make it. And there was no, there was nothing radio friendly on it. And um, they just kind of said, well, fuck you then. And uh, oh, yeah. they kept me for the next album, uh, which I tried to make a little bit more accessible, even <laughs> though there was a couple of angry songs on it. Um, but even still, the, the, the relationship was still not kind of working. Yeah. And after that album, it was after that album that I parted ways with my manager. Mm-hmm. And um, Sheena came on board, thankfully. And uh, since then, things have gotten way better. She's got your back. Yeah. Universal tried to kind of keep me in the deal, but give me less money. And she goes, no, that means you're breaking the deal, which yeah. you definitely know, but you're hoping he doesn't know. And uh, <laughs> So she got me away from Universal and then I'm just doing it on my own, which is kind of just way nicer. Yeah, so all those things, they sound like bad luck, but they're not really. They're all my fault, really. <laughs> hey, man, it's only bad luck if you call it bad luck. Yeah. Um, and and like the forays into Canada and stuff, is that a new thing or have you been doing that all along? I was looking to do that all along. Uh, okay. But Sheena is the one that has made it possible, really, with her okay. contacts and she knows a lot of people and she's just generally, you know, so capable that uh, things just work with yeah. her, you know. Um, so everything has been really going well, you know. And, w- and what about the States? Like, are you, do you tour in the States much? Like, I notice you're coming in to do a festival here and there and stuff, but do you spend extended periods of time touring here or not? Not extended, really. Like, it would be two, two weeks type things. Mm-hmm. Which is a personal choice at this stage now because I have a young son now and yeah, it suits me fine really. Mm-hmm. Uh, being away from my partner for a long time doesn't really suit me. I, 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 you know, I don't like how the relationship suffers in that you know, for with yeah. those things. Yeah, I just kind of keep them smaller. I, but I do really enjoy them. I enjoy going to the states um, because it feels like it's where the music came from that I was influenced by that I kind of want to go towards it. Yeah. Robert Plant was talking about that last night at his concert, actually. He was, you know, yeah. saying basically exactly the same thing, how they came up listening to all this stuff in, in Britain and just like messed it all up and then 
you know, got to come over and see how it was really done, <laughs> which is yeah. his modest take on it, but similar. Yeah, or you feel like there's a teacher there in some way that you kind of want to show your homework to. <laughs> I like that. Um, uh, okay, so you you mentioned you're starting to work on another record. So this is something you're doing back in Cork, yeah. Christian at the helm, like your your band with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, we've been we're just doing five days, and we might we might get someone else in to kind of mess up our intuitions and kind of yeah. give another color. But we're happy enough at the moment because we got a, we have a lot of songs to kind of go for. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. Do you always go into a project with like a shit ton of new material, or do you just have like ten songs that you want to get down? Usually, there'll be enough to to say that it's an album recording. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have 15 or 16 for going for this one. Okay. So I'm kind of hoping to get, yeah, call a few down. I, I'd like to make a kind of a tighter album than some of the ones I've made are, are a bit too long. I think as well, I'm drawn a bit more towards a higher tempo. I, my life has changed. <laughs> You're bumping up that metronome again. <laughs> you know, I play to my son uh-huh. just to entertain him. You know, he loves the guitar. He loves watching what's happening on the, the two hands and he's kind mm. of fascinated. But I play him kind of slow songs that I like, kind of cover songs mm. and he's just bored. He wants to hear Smells Like Teen Spirit. Sure. Who doesn't? But, yeah. So I play him that and then I say, oh shit, I don't know any other stuff. So I, I, st- so I start... <laughs> I start kind of jamming or playing guitar just faster, just so that he's enjoying it or whatever. And then I start, so I know I'm starting to write over this kind of faster pace. Oh, that's cool, man. So he's, <laughs> he's inspiring this new album to be a little bit more upbeat. A little peppier. Yeah, which is cool. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Man, it's been great to talk to you here and you too. Find, out about your, find out about your scene. It's an honor to be invited onto this. Thank you. That was my conversation with Mick Flannery. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast speaking with with him and learning about his life and music. I hope you did too. And we will see you in a couple weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. See you in a couple weeks. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music